Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. We are uh, starting this morning with lesson number nine, which is the look at the Holy Spirit's work in the corporate body of believers. And we've been talking for the last four weeks about the individual and how important the work of the Spirit is. It's uh, necessary in our moment-by-moment walk with the Lord that He keeps us full of Himself so that we are controlled and temperate. And if you've ever carried on a conversation with uh, an accomplished gardener, do we have any accomplished gardeners in this body here this morning? I see, okay, I've got someone pointing at someone else here, all right? So we've got a couple of green thumbs, you would put your thumbs up, yeah, we see those. You'll know that gardening is not uh, a chance occurrence. If you were to try to grow roses, you don't just toss seeds in the backyard and expect the roses to bloom in their full way. To assume that method, do what? You, you can do that? Well, that's pretty good. You assume that you could. Well, to assume that method of gardening would be to learn that the natural world is in a constant state of overcoming the plants, seeking to blossom and bear fruit. If roses grew, and these are the roses that you would purchase on Valentine's Day or otherwise, naturally and freely, they probably wouldn't cost upwards of $50 a dozen. And if a farmer did not have to fight insects and the choking weeds, thousands of dollars could be saved yearly in herbicide and pesticides. So we've already learned in our study of the Spirit's work in this individual who is growing as well in the Spirit, that naturally the individual is in no state to respond to the gospel message. And you could read about the parable of the sower to know that that is true. What separates that one plant from growing into fullness and bearing fruit versus the other seeds that are choked out and do not come to fruition. It's the work of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates the heart upon hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, thereby justifying the believer as Christ's righteousness is imputed or accounted to the believer. At the moment of justification, we know the believer is indwelled with the Holy Spirit, who seals us until the day of redemption, even to the redemption of our bodies. He is the promise of our salvation. The Holy Spirit, being the current promise of our coming redemption, is not only this once-for-all guarantee of our future inheritance, but He is also our ever-working helper in sanctification. Now, that is our review from the last four weeks. Now, in this progression of our sanctified existence as believers, we are moment by moment influenced by the Holy Spirit in our thoughts, our desires, and our actions. Last week, we discussed the reality that though the Holy Spirit indwells and will never leave the believer, there are times of stagnation or regression in our sanctification wherein the believer loses the fullness of the Spirit. God's Word describes this event as quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit. The Holy One is teaching, illuminating, and empowering the believer through the Scriptures 
but is in conflict with this flesh, this fallen flesh that we are still within. The believer who grieves the Holy Spirit will also quench this fullness of the Spirit because of sin, but it can be regained. We know that our Father who is in heaven and our Savior who is interceding for us even now at the right hand of the Father, in communion with the Spirit within, knows intimately what sin is festering in the heart even of the believer. Our good Father desires good for his children and will not allow his children to continue in sin forever. He, by various means, will discipline, and a lot of times people think that that's simply punishment, but discipline is training, and he trains us. He trains his children to bring them to a place of turning from their sin that is grieving the heart of God to return again to the fullness of the Spirit, seeking then fully the control of the Spirit in our daily walk with God. And we do this by yielding to the things of God, thereby mortifying or killing the fleshly deeds and desires. And the Spirit of God then gives the fullness of his spiritual empowerment to overcome this habitual sin, which will permeate every chamber of our hearts with his fullness in joy as a rich, sweet-smelling aroma and then of the controlling of our thoughts, and then the controlling of our actions. This fullness is always supposed to be the norm. It's the default state of the believer in our daily walk. Fullness of the Spirit does not always mean we walk around with a smile painted on our face. Now, if you knew me outside of this room, I laugh and I joke, you wouldn't think so, during these teaching sessions. I, I have a seriousness in this teaching chamber where we laugh at times, of course, but um, this is an important matter, and it's not a flippant thing to talk about. It's very much important because of overcoming these pitfalls that we have in life, but also to recognize our joy And to me, joy is a serious business. So I I take it seriously to, to learn what Scripture has to tell us. Because we do weep in this life. We weep over our sin. We weep over our unsaved loved ones. We weep over the effects of disease upon the physical body and the corruption of the culture in our own nation and around the world. We weep for the persecution of our brothers and sisters in the faith around the world. So though we weep for these things in a real and authentic way, we at the same time, being full of the Spirit, being constantly yielding to the ways of God, remain in joy that will not diminish. This fullness brings to fruition, the root word being fruit, what is known as the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22 through 26, a well-known passage we find this succinct list of these manifest fruits of the Spirit's fullness. Love, joy, peace. Those are all one syllable. Patience, kindness, goodness. Those are two syllables. Faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. That's how I remember them as a teacher. One, two, and three syllables. It's easy to remember. Now, those who belong to Christ and who are indwelt and influenced by the Holy Spirit have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, living by the Spirit and then also walking by the Spirit. Walking implies progression. In so doing, we bear this fruit that the world can see and the world cannot deny as being good. You can take a believer and an unbeliever and you walk to a tree and you pick off the fruit and you taste the fruit and you can tell if it's a good tree or not. In the same way, those who walk in Christ, you cannot deny that there is a goodness within them. Now, you might say they're not fully good. I'd agree with that because we're still in the flesh and we still sin. But even the world can recognize and glorify our Father who is in heaven, not in the way we believers do, but there is a recognition of the goodness that the Father and Christ and the Holy Spirit are working within us. When the fruits are seen and experienced, we thank God and glorify Him. We don't glory or glorify the fruits themselves, but we glorify God as we thank Him for them. It's His work. It's His harvest. So, this morning... As we begin these final four lessons of our study, we're talking about the corporate body of Christ. There was no way to begin speaking about the Spirit's work in our unified body before first speaking about the individual, which I am glad that you have persevered through and are still here this morning. And it's, it's good to talk with people who have been in the study with you that bring you to this point. It's like falling asleep on a long vacation. You say, hey, remember those mountains we saw in Colorado on our way to California? Well, I was kind of sleeping through that. You can't share that knowledge and and talk about those things, but it's been good to talk with several of you about uh, all of these lessons as we've progressed. But the study of the body of believers is really a study of many individual believers working together in fellowship and communion to accomplish the purposes of God on this earth. These individuals, those of us who are in Christ, that's very important. We have the visible church. That's everyone I'm looking at here. As people drive by, they see Faith Bible Church. It's the visible church. What people see. God sees the invisible church. He sees the wheat that will be harvested. He also sees the tares among the wheat. And there are many people who go to church every Sunday, but they are not part of the body of Christ in the invisible sense, which is what God knows. And I also believe in the hearts of the individuals themselves, they know whether or not they are in the body of Christ. So this study is a study of all of these individual believers working together in fellowship and communion to accomplish the purposes of God on this earth. We are, we are called the called. And on your handout, which is where your handout starts, this is a study of the church. It is in the Greek, the ecclesia, which is where we get this word, ecclesiology. And ecclesiology is a study of the church, the things of the church. 
and ek kaleo, out of, and then kaleo, the cold, it comes together in the reverse fashion, the called out ones. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, we find, he who calls you is faithful. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, to this he called you through our gospel, through the preaching of the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Who follows in the steps of Christ? Those whom he calls. And we could follow the ordo salutis. Those who call, he also justifies. And those who he justifies, he will also glorify. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our good works or our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. And finally, Ephesians 4.4, There is one body and one church, or body of... I lost my place. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, there it is again, to the one hope that belongs to your call. A study of the church or body of believers in Christ is ecclesiology. These called or elect or chosen, a lot of people like to shy away from that word, but the Bible repeatedly calls us these adjectives to describe the body of Christ. We are members of the body, and we are individuals who belong to a greater fellowship. And in Ephesians 4.4, it says... Or this is the Second Timothy 1.9 where it says where he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So we are the called, we are the chosen before the ages began. And that is a very amazing statement because you could say, well, I was in sin 10 years ago, heinous sin, and I was the chosen before the ages began. It goes back to the grace of God. That is why we are the chosen. It is by his grace alone that we are chosen by him, which should also bring us to a state of awe and worship if we know Christ. These elect, these chosen, have been purchased by the blood of Christ and snatched out of the fire of God's wrath to come, and they are individually abiding in Christ and sealed by his Spirit. As the Holy Spirit has worked to bring us to Christ, he applies this gift of redemption. He also, as a corporate body, allows us to persevere throughout our walk with the Lord. Now, this title of the lesson is Gifts of the Spirit. It's important to distinguish the Spirit himself is our great gift sent by Christ and the Father, and the gifts of the Spirit are those things given by our great gift. These gifts are meant to edify primarily the body. They are not to glorify the believer, which some teach sometimes uh, indirectly. 
but they uplift these gifts and they separate, we'll learn later this morning, they separate and they divide the church. This person is manifesting a certain gift, a certain level of spirituality, and that divides the church. But the Spirit is giving these gifts to edify the body. We will see this emphasis of unity unity and edification of the body, and not primarily the edification of the believer individually. So keep that in mind as we talk about these things. It's important to recognize the importance that each believer also is gifted with some spiritual gift, and it is to be used. So as we think of these things, let's ask the Lord to give us wisdom and insight to what spiritual gifts are, and not to overemphasize the gifts, but to recognize them uh, so that we may also apply them, because that's why they're given, to be used. So let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, as we have met this morning and we enjoy our fellowship together here, we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, give us enlightenment to the things that we'll read in your word, and help us to Be thankful, Lord, for what you do for us, and also recognize what we could be doing with what you have given us, that we don't wrap it in a napkin and bury it under our tent, but that we reveal these things to the world, what you are doing, and use these gifts for your glory and the edification of this body. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Now, the giftedness of individuals could be separated into natural gifts and spiritual gifts. Natural gifts are these things that everyone in the world has. And you're like, well, I don't really have any natural gifts. Well, if you can sew or crochet, that's a natural gift. I can't do that. Some people have a knack for arts and crafts. I worked for the YMCA for seven years. We had arts and crafts every day that I worked and I was never good at it, even in seven years. So there's some things that you're not naturally good at, but some people do excel in other other areas. Those are natural gifts. There are plenty of gifted individuals with these charismata, which simply means giftedness. A lot of people with charisma. A lot of secular uh, people in the world that have charisma. They're very gifted. Apart from the regenerating power of the Spirit. Now, these naturally gifted individuals, even in the past, even though they're naturally gifted, apart from God, will still be gifted their entire lives, but absent of any gifts spiritually. Some of the most evil men of history have been natural leaders and gifted with much intelligence, which made their evil all the worse. Having some natural gift, then, is not always a beautiful thing to desire. Even within the visible church, these assemblies of worship, there are charismatic leaders that lead with a natural ability, not with a spiritual. The spiritual is the effectual work that actually edifies the body. Now, these natural-born leaders, as we could call them, could be also called wolves in sheep's clothing. 
They forsake sound doctrine and by their gifted speech tickle the ears of their hearers, leading many astray. It says in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting, desiring, to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. People don't listen to boring people. You're like, well, I'm listening to you, Bo. (laughs) Well, so be it. But there are gifted speakers in the world that draw in thousands of people, but it's not a spiritual giftedness. In Acts 20, 28 through 30, it says, Be on guard for yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So giftedness, even within the visible church, does not equate to spiritual giftedness. Natural gifts of the sinner, when indwelt by the Holy Spirit, do not enhance and become greater. Spiritual gifts are something other than these natural gifts. Now, we can, as sinners, bring our natural gifts into service. We know, uh, for instance, Paul was a very organized leader, very strong intellect, very zealous. These were natural gifts. It's who he was, inherently. But it was everything against Christ. Once he was converted, those natural gifts continued, but to the glory of Christ. But still, natural gifts are not spiritual gifts. So what is a spiritual gift? What kinds of spiritual gifts are there within the body of Christ, and how do I know which one I've been given? Because we have all been given a spiritual gift. In November of 2018, just last year, John MacArthur had a sermon about this very topic, and he says that uh, these gifts can be defined in three categories. Signs and wonders, speaking, which is simply uh, oratory or presenting the gospel, and serving. Each of these categories of giftedness had a purpose in the first century church, and each category still means something to us today, though there are great disputes as to what that means exactly. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that a spiritual gift is an extraordinary power distinguishing certain Christians and enabling them to serve the church of Christ, the reception of which is due to the power of divine grace operating in their souls by the Holy Spirit. And that's the end of his quote there. 
These spiritual gifts are something new, something special, given by God's Holy Spirit graciously. Just as we did not earn our salvation, which is a gift of God, so we receive spiritual gifts from the sovereign spirit who decides whom the gift will be given, whom he saves, what gift will be received, because he is the giver, and when it will be received. MacArthur also says he sat under his father's preaching for years, for years, but it wasn't until his college years in his 20s that he knew that his gift of preaching was known. So when it will be received as well, when the Spirit indwells you. In 1 Corinthians 12, we are exhorted to be aware of spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Each one includes each one. This gathering is not an assembly of spectators entertained by professionals, which I, of course, am not. And John Piper wrote a book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. It's not some club that requires that you pay your dues on time, your tithing, which is a good thing to do, of course, but we don't simply pay our, pay our dues and show up for the weekly meetings. Each one is given a spiritual gift for the common good. Some have more than one spiritual gift. We know that the apostles, for instance, sent out in the early church were also prophets of necessity. They went out, they were sent, and they preached the word of God. Now, these miraculous gifts that were given to these apostles and prophets of the first century, the signs gift, we could call them in the first category, were given to authenticate the message of which they were preaching. There was no New Testament. There were no existing authority for them to refer to. Whenever they preached Christ's message, it accompanied with that message these miracles. It says in John 2.11, speaking of Christ and his ministry, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. It was showing to the world the authority that he had based on these miracles that he was, that he was performing. There was no New Testament written in the early church, so this authority they proclaimed was reinforced by the power the people witnessed. In Romans 15, 19, it says, Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Stephen was full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people in Acts 6, 8. You may be asking, well, yes, obviously this miraculous gift of signs was evident in the early church, but where are these now? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that these particular gifts have ceased in the present church, and for good reason. He says that they have ceased not because the church became less spiritual, 
as some would say, and that's why they're trying to get these gifts to come back into the church again, I would say by their own efforts. But because these gifts were manifest or made known to establish the foundation of the church and attest to the message that was being preached. Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets in Christ Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone. An argument for why we do not see these miracles of healings, casting out demons, tongues, speech, is because they were for the purpose of laying the foundation. Once the foundation was laid, then the rest of the church was built upon that authority. Does one continually rebuild a foundation, as Ephesians 2.20 tells us? No. Does God still perform miracles? Of this, of course. And I say of course because why else would we pray for the physical needs of our brothers and sisters? Why else would we pray for God's intervention in some ministry? We desire God's intervening hand, and without it, without his intervening hand, no one would be saved, for that in itself, as we know, is a miraculous work. But the gift of miracles, including healing, discerning spirits, and speaking in other languages, directly from an individual immediately, which means without a mediator, just as some of the apostles could say, take up your bed and walk, that was an immediate use of this miraculous gift of healing. In that, it has ceased. Now, although God accomplishes his work through the prayers of the saints, the immediate, without mediator, working of gifted individuals like the apostles with these miraculous gifts has passed. Now, this is an unpopular teaching in many congregations, but the evidence of Scripture and our own experience points us to that conclusion. Now, a quick word on this uh, gift of tongues and interpretation, because they do go together. When this was evidenced in the day of Pentecost and the other Pentecost-like experiences, which we read about in Acts chapters 10 and 19, it was to communicate the clear, ordered message of the gospel. At the church in Corinth, where gifts were being abused, they were very much gifted, but they were being abused, the Bible tells us that there was ecstatic speech going on which was not a language at all, but these sounds and uttered words without understanding. And it said that it was not always accompanied with this interpretation. So in Acts, we have a clear message presented in Corinth, a lack of control, and in, in the Corinthian letter, a lack of control, and in Acts, a clear, ordered message. There's a contrast there. Some like to uphold the gift of tongues as a non-negotiable for having a manifest anointing of God. They would even go as far to say, you're not assured of your salvation until you manifest this gift. 
Since tongues speech is sometimes regarded as the greatest manifestation of an outside power, it is then upheld as the best indicator that one is indwelt with the Spirit. But this is actually not even scriptural. For we know that for one, not everyone, even in the early church, the first century church, even received this gift of tongues. So even in the first century, this gift of tongues, as some would like to have today, was not for everyone. And also, tongue speech is one of the lesser gifts, as it is the last in an ordered listing of these spiritual gifts. Paul even writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 19, he said, however, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind, my own language, my own mind, so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. It's quite a statement. He wouldn't be very popular in some of these churches that uphold this gift of tongues as a non-negotiable in the highest of spiritual manifestation. Even further, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 27 through 28, he says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or, th- or at the most three. And I'm quoting straight from scripture here. And he says, and each in turn. So it's not everyone speaking at once in this disorderly confusion of ecstatic speech, but it would be one person coming up, speaking in a tongue, and then you must have also an interpreter. Because it says next, each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, he says. This is the first century here. So even these churches are not following the model of the first century. It says, and let him keep silent, let him speak to himself and to God. Now, I was researching this, and I was listening to a sermon, watching a sermon. Um, It's called the Lutheran Renewal Movement. It's a charismatic sect of the Lutheran church, which I would say is a lot of places these days. But this pastor was furthering this idea of the gift of tongues. And he said, does anyone have a tongue for us this morning? A man came up, gave an ecstatic speech. And then he said, following the biblical model, who has an interpretation of this tongue? There was a nine-year-old girl that raised her hand and he called her up and She gave her interpretation of that tongue, but there were others that were ready to interpret. And three individuals came up to interpret this tongue, and in a surprise, it was in three different ways. Now, that's conflicting. It's contradictory. That's not the way the Spirit worked in the first century church. These tongues had a clear, ordered message because The Spirit is not one of confusion. He is one of order and clarity. So, the gift of speaking includes that of the apostles and the prophets. And those apostles that were sent out to preach the message and the prophets, these 13 original prophets, and yes, there are 13, there were the 12 disciples that were the apostles 
and Paul was added to that number after Matthias took Judas's place. So there were 13. And just so everyone knows, I'm, I'm off the topic of tongues now, so we can move on past that. But we're moving on now to this gift of speaking. And we have in this gift of speaking apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And I don't mean to be a killjoy this morning, but apostles and prophets, that is something else that is being reinstated in the church in these modern times. The apostles preached the things of Christ with authority, and they were the ones also with the gifts of signs and wonders. Now, a primary requirement was that they were primary witnesses of Christ, without which you could not be one of these 13 apostles, with a capital A. Now, once these 13 apostles passed into glory, they didn't have a replacement in that apostleship. It wasn't like Elijah and Elisha where someone took up the mantle. Once they, in most cases, were martyred, no one took their place in that same office, in the same way. Now, though there were other sent ones on missions, we know there were other apostles mentioned, like the, um, the men that were sent out, like Silas, for instance, into a different place on a mission to carry the gospel, as we have with missionaries today, although we have men like that who are also sent ones, or the apostoli, still today there are men and women who claim to be apostles like the 13. These apostles have authority over churches that they have planted. They claim that although they were not eyewitnesses of Christ, they are still, in the same way, Apostles. They say they're carrying on the apostleship. Now, prophets were involved in a local ministry to a local congregation. Again, this was before the New Testament was written. These prophets spoke revelation from God. But this ministry was not just to foretell the future and give revelation, which is the spiritual gift that has ceased, giving extra revelation. But these prophets taught the things that the apostles taught, just like I'm doing right now. I don't claim authority in myself. I look back to the authority in the written epistles and gospels. We hear of modern-day prophets, but those that are true teachers are only teaching what the closed canon of Scripture already says. If I came up here and told you, God gave me a word this morning, red flag, Just like those golf carts that you see driving through New Harmony. They've got those big red flags waving behind them. Warning, okay? Warning. To say that prophets are still actively prophesying, whether it be future events or added revelation, is to say that the canon of Scripture is still being written, which opens the door for all manner of doctrinal confusion. You see that confusion there again. Gifts of speaking that do continue today... Let me say something else. I was confused earlier in my life when I heard that Francis Schaeffer was called a modern-day prophet. And I thought, well, I thought the prophets had ceased. Well, prophets foretold the future, they gave revelation, and they simply spoke the things of God. They preached the Word. So in that way, sure, he was a modern-day prophet in that respect, but... 
The gifts that continue in speaking today would be that of the evangelist who goes out and preaches outside of his local congregation, the pastor who is dedicated to shepherding and teaching the local body, and various teaching ministries as well. The evangelist is mentioned in Ephesians 4.11 and Acts 21.8. Evangelists preach the word of God wherever they are, whenever they have opportunity. Evangelists are the sent ones in our current day. Evangelists plant churches. They exhort believers in local assemblies, maybe a fledgling assembly, and they'll, they'll meet with them and, and preach for them for a time to proclaim Christ in outside communities. Pastors shepherd the local congregation, provide a teaching ministry that includes counseling and exhorting people to good works, caring for those, especially those in need or grieving, and equipping men and women for effective ministry. And that is a spiritual, that's the spiritual side of the spiritual gifts. There is an effectiveness in ministry. Pastors and teachers have been lumped together in some definitions of this gift because both edify, exhort, and equip the body of Christ in the things of the scriptures and the things of God. And even I, as one of many who teach here at Faith Bible, am in submission to the existing leadership, which is another office of giftedness within the church, elders who are the leadership and they're in submission to the head of the body, which is Christ. Each of these continuing gifts of speech of the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher, will be evident in this tremendous sense of responsibility for the accurate and right dividing of Scripture. And I would say that no one who's called into ministry, or even who's teaching, could have this gift without recognizing and having this heart for the right dividing of Scripture. Some get up and they'll tell stories for an hour, and I wonder, is this a natural gift or is this a spiritual? Because if you're not in the Word, there's not going to be effective, uh, effectiveness, effective results. So the third category of spiritual gifts, and I'm moving on here to finish are the gifts of service. Now, on the inside of our bulletin here, and I was looking at some of the things that were happening here in the church this week, it says on the far right, this tear-out section, welcome to our guests, and it shows a list of, of six different ministries that are available to edify the body. And every person who is dedicated down the hall here that you never see because they're with my daughters in two different classes... I'm actually not exactly sure how many different classes are being taught or those who are responsible for them right now, but these are gifts of service. In the kitchen, preparing the breakfast every morning, that is an act of service. It is a giftedness that people present to the body to build up the body. Hopefully not your waistline, but they're building up the body spiritually, so... Leadership is also a gift of service, and spiritual leadership or administration, as the Bible calls it, is not only present in 
the ordained and those elders and deacons within the church that are recognized with specific offices, but there are also leadership, there is also leadership within the laity. How many small groups are there currently active within the membership here at Faith Bible? There are people leading that. I'm part of one. Brad Edelman, week in and week out, he and his wife are ready to teach. They're ready to present us with, with renewing truth from God's word. How many outreach opportunities have been planned and completed, such as the sharing of the gospel with the public, giving food to those in need, and supporting children's ministries, both here on campus and outside of these walls? Being responsible for any work in the church, mobilizing the efforts to see it accomplished, and reaching that goal by the effective power of the spirits of the Spirit is leadership. And this gift extends throughout the body beyond these recognized offices. There are those who visit people in the hospital. There are those who organize meal trains for those in need. There are those who clean the building. All of these are acts of service. These forms of service have various giftedness that is difficult uh, for me personally to define because many people do many things well. We see a lot of these spiritual gifts overlapping. They may be in the midst of visiting someone, but in the midst of that, they're also counseling someone because they have that giftedness. They're in the word enough to know how to encourage and exhort people in that hard place wherever they are. There are defined attitudes of those who serve and these service gifts are shown by those who are, who are obedient to Christ and his word. They're not serving for personal gain or personal accolades. They are humble. Others being more important than themselves. They do this in love, in unity, and helping others' needs and then also having your needs met creates this interchange of edification that builds unity. And then also they have a willingness. They have a desire to serve. It's not a drudgery for people to go in and visit. I got to go visit so-and-so at the hospital. See you in a couple hours. That is not... That is not a gift of service. There's a willingness there. Now, yes, sometimes we force ourselves. We're tired in the flesh, but there's always a desire that although we're tired, we're going to serve. And if you were to ask some of the leaders of these various ministries what needs there are, you say, well, I feel led to, to serve in this area, but I really don't know where to start. I know I have a gift in this area. I don't know where to start. Well, look in these, in the bulletin for these various ministries and get in touch with those who are leading them and get plugged in to help with these, this mobilization of these efforts. It is all for the growth and the edification of the body, these gifts. So in your handout, there's a list of the temporary gifts and there is also a list of the permanent gifts that we still have in the church.
There is also this gift of faith that's listed. It's the last one. And this is not saving faith, but this gift of faith is a giftedness that allows an individual to rest fully in the provision of God to accomplish some work, like George Mueller or Hudson Taylor, the missionary in China, who are called out of their comfortability into the uncomfortable, the almost seemingly impossible environment to, su- to succeed, but they had this gift of faith that enabled them to trust God even with their very lives and for their daily needs to be met so that they could accomplish what they were called to do. That would be the gift of faith. And we see this in mission work, and we have people that visit our church that we support, these missionaries. So to recap, all of these temporary gifts that have ceased and all of these permanent gifts that exist were all meant for the first century church. But now, in our time, we have gifts that still edify the body. And as with the beautiful garden, we mentioned the gardener at the beginning, there are various kinds of flowers that add to the full beauty and function of the garden. And so we have these various gifts that also bring beauty to the body of Christ. And every gift is important and needed. So let's thank the Lord for his work in our lives and in this body. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning, and we thank you for what you do for us in the giving of these gifts. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize them, not for our own um, honor, but we pray that you would give us this awareness so that we can serve you and serve each other better. And Lord, as we enter into our worship hour, may you bless those who are serving even in that hour and as we leave. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.